0: Is the bloody disgusting podcast network.
1: Don't let them haunt you. Hello? Boils
2: and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in From Los Angeles, California Bloody Disgusting presents The Boo Crew Podcast Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand And Leone D'Antonio I'm
1: Leo I'm Lauren I'm Trevor
0: And we are the Boo Crew Welcome to episode 111 We're talking to writer, actor, director Lee Wannell About his new movie, The Invisible Man, in theaters now
3: Learn about the films that inform his very unique creative vocabulary. The magic of weaponizing empty space. The pathway to creating iconic franchises like Saw and more.
1: Uh oh, guys. I think he's here. But we can't see him.
4: Hey, this is Lee Winnell, and don't look now, but I'm sitting right beside you. As you listen to the boot crew,
1: <laughs> I'm scared. You don't have to be scared of him anymore. He was a sociopath,
3: completely in control of everything. He
0: said that wherever I went, he would find me, walk right up to me, and I wouldn't
1: be able to see him. Are you okay? Someone's sitting in that chair.
2: Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy.
3: Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio is a celebrated actor, writer, director, and producer who has given the horror genre and film history franchises that have not only become iconic but that have created entire new approaches within the space writing and plot twists have never been the same since our guest starred in and created saw alongside james Wan in 2003 the sinister billy character taking its place among the greatest and most recognized of all time not just in horror but in pop culture in general he went on to write Saw 2 II and 3 before it took on a life of its own, and with the upcoming release of Spiral later this year, has spread out over nine entries, launching the career of fantastic filmmakers such as Darren Lynn Bowsman and changed the game when it came to movie editing. Meanwhile, another of horror's most beloved storylines was dreamt up in 2010 with a script he wrote with Juan directing Insidious, now composing four films. He also stars in them as paranormal investigator Specs. The horror was grounded in reality and strong characters. They were expert exercises in misdirection, that has led it to being called one of the best and most compelling franchises ever created in the genre. Then came the South by Southwest and Sitges winning Upgrade. There quite possibly never been a more exhilarating and rewarding action film to experience. The world building he was able to accomplish with a micro budget is nothing short of legendary. The Invisible Man is the new movie starring Elizabeth Moss and Oliver Jackson-Cohen. Now playing in theaters everywhere, we are honored to
4: welcome its writer-director, Lee fucking 1L. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. I can uh, I can already say this is the greatest uh, podcast I've ever been on because I'm not sure this makes for great radio, but um, and perhaps many of your guests have said this, but it's taking place in what is easily the greatest setting of all time. I walked into this unassuming house, listeners, in Burbank, California. From the exterior, it looked like the house setting of a second-tier reality show. You know, maybe... Um, yeah, the Bachelorette's child or something. When you open the door, though, you step into uh, you step into Forest Ackerman's uh, better, older Richard brother's house.
2: Uh,
4: it is filled with uh, many horror icons everywhere. You don't know where to look. Your head explodes if you're a horror fan. Uh, one of the first things I saw is a giant cabinet filled with dolls from uh, a film that I wrote, Dead Silence. So I didn't know whether to be happy or to experience severe PTSD flashbacks (laughs) to the making of that film. And now I'm sitting in this interesting little chamber room which kind of looks like what Glenn Danzig would come up with if he was trying to impress a date. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, it, it has uh, paintings of gothic figures everywhere. It has the severed head from Hereditary. I'm just taking over, guys. By the way, this is you, great are, you are guests on my podcast yes. at this point. Yes, um, it's a fucking crime. How did they get it? Why don't I have it? These are questions you would be asking yourself if you were here. Um, I have tried to pocket several items without their knowledge since being here, and I've only been here for 15 minutes. Um, it sure is hard to hold the hourglass from, hourglass from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire in your pants, but I'm trying, ladies and gentlemen, I am trying. Um, I do want to negotiate a price on the life-size Jack Torrance figure you have in your dining room. (laughs) He's tried, He tried already. I know I I I can't steal that, so I am going to conduct psychological warfare on you for the rest of my time here. Perhaps a trade. Yes, a trade. Yeah, I'll trade you. Because I need it, I need it, and I can't wait to have it built for me. I just need to take that one with me in a U-haul right now.
1: But Wendy's coming like next month.
4: Wendy Torrance oh, you oh got to see god, the Wendy Wen- Torrance. Oh man, you it's- guys are killing me! You're killing me. I realize I failed. That's what this. That's what this house is. It's a big symbol of my own failure in life.
1: No.
3: <laughs> oh my god, that that was ah uh, insanely awesome. By the way, thank you for that. Thank you. <laughs> Sound bites for the rest of our lives. So you've been doing a lot of press for this movie. I'm so curious, what do you get out of that that part? Besides, you know, creating awareness for the movie, is there anything that you get back in, in revisiting over and over again the memories of making
4: this film? I mean, you kind of do. Interviews, in a way, can be free therapy. If you look at them the right way, you know, you hear a lot of actors complain about interviews and press, and I guess the bigger stars do so much of it that it wears them down and it's no longer novel or interesting. But for me, you know, I only make a film once every few years. So interviews are fun. Like, um, first of all, there's someone sitting there right in front of you who wants to talk about your film. And, and I've made films before I've been part of movies that no one was interested in, you know, where the publicist is like, we have an interview with Cat Fancy lined up. <laughs> but aside from that, uh, time's not calling. So if whenever I'm lucky enough to make a film that where people are lining up to interview me and it's time and it's the New York Times and it's it's podcasts like this and it's I'm 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 excited I'm I am i am i am excited i am i recognize that it is a champagne problem and the the one thing that gets tiring I guess is when the bulk of people ask the same questions because it's does something to your brain right where you start but every now and again someone will hit you. Uh, with different questions and, and wakes you up. You're like, oh, whoa, I have to actually concentrate on this one. And it's fun. I, I guess it helps me unpack the movie. Usually with a movie, when you finish it, there's a period of a few months where you wait for the marketing people to come up with a plan, and then they would figure out when it's going to come out. And then you start doing interviews, and you're like thinking back like, m- okay, where was my head at months and months and months ago? Well, in the case of mis- this movie, that didn't happen. I only finished the film... A few weeks ago. No oh, way. Like, oh, shit. Yeah, this movie already had a release date. We we were working towards a release date. And so it's a, been a weird experience to be like, okay, that's it. Tools down. Dust the hands. And then walk out of the room into an interview. Hi. <laughs> that's crazy. Wow. So, so it's like I'm unpacking the experience so close to the experience you know, it's like a shark attack victim. He's just been hauled out of the beach, his legs hanging off. There's blood everywhere, and a reporter sticks a microphone in his face and like, "What is it like being attacked by a shark, sir? Can you describe that for me?" The guy's like, "I'm kind of still going through it." He asked me in a month when the legs healed. I feel I'm that I'm that shark attack victim on the beach. Like people are asking me about my motives for this film when I'm still trying to work out. It just happened, you know. I've yeah. had no time to digest it and think about it. So it's been, on this particular film, it's been interesting.
3: Speaking of that, is there anything that you've learned about, you know, during the press process about the film that you never thought about before?
4: A couple of things. Like, sometimes someone will point something out and I'll think, oh, wow, like, like, um, connections to Upgrade. You know, people saying, you know, this film- Like part of the the same universe? Yeah, or like, well, more like um, sharing a lot of the same filmmaking techniques and a lot of the same- iconography like you know there's a rich guy who lives by the sea right uh, Overlooking. Yeah. like i didn't <laughs> With even, the lab and I, all I this stuff i didn't even yeah. realize you know it seems weird to say it but i didn't even realize that and, until it was pointed out in an interview like wow there's something going on there i <laughs> maybe uh freud could unpack that one for me but um but that so that's been interesting just sort of look at that and and it's been um it's been interesting to see how much people react to just little things that you do in a movie sometimes you think a little subtle thing you do in a movie is just going to skate by the audience. And, and it doesn't, you know, it lands with people. Like in the movie, we do this thing where we pan away from the actors to like these empty corners. Yeah. Right. right. And you know, when you're on the set, you have no idea if that's going to work. Is it going to land? And then all the interviewers start asking about it and you're like, Oh, it, 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 it landed. It, it, it resonated with people. It's good for your next movie. Cause you take that with you. Like, like, the next movie i direct i will now be armed with this knowledge that any little thing that i do that's purposeful or different or unique in some way will stick with people and so it makes you want to do more of that you know makes me want to be more unique be be crazier you know try something keep keep getting more and more um, bold i guess sure yeah. sure what looking
3: back at what informs your decisions in the way the very unique way that you've come up with making films and telling these stories. What were those first films that impacted you in that way?
4: In my, in my life when yeah. I was, you know, I think the film, the first film that had a really big impact on me was Jaws. Like every other kid. I mean, I was born in 77, the year Star Wars came out. And so I think by the time I was, you know, f- five years old, it had just come out on video. Like I think that that was right when VHS and beta oh, yeah. was sure. a thing. Yeah. Yeah, I remember yeah. my dad, my dad came home. He had won a a Beta video machine at a golf tournament. Wow! Like, like he had, he'd come in first at some local golf tournament, and the prize was this video player the size of a microwave. It was probably like <laughs> yeah. three thousand dollars back exactly, then. Exactly, yeah, it was like a gajillion dollars. And and of course the the tape, if you remember, on the Beta, yeah. it went upwards. Yeah. yeah, you put the tapes in and. And so I remember that thing landing in our house, and what a novel. It's like, we can watch movies at home. And uh, we all trundled off to the video store, the whole family. Of course, we were selecting from the beta section, which was very thin. <laughs> yes, yeah. it was. If you remember, the VHS section <laughs> was huge, yeah. and then they'd be like, and here's a couple of beta titles for you losers. <laughs> <laughs> and those tapes were much bigger, too, right? Yeah, they would yeah, be. Yeah. But I, I remember that day I walked in. I guess I was five years old, and- um, I walked in and I saw this cover. It was this faded, crappy video store cover of a shark rising up towards the woman. And it had this like, that's before I've seen the movie. Just that image had a huge visceral imp- impact on me. I was obsessed with it. I, and I remember this, you know, like it was yesterday. I just, my dad wouldn't let me get it. He said, oh, no, no, that's too, that's too much for you. He made me get Popeye starring (laughs) starring Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall. That's a very crazy (laughs) film. Exactly. (laughs) Equally horrific. But um, I kept hounding him about it. I remember I would go to school. (laughs) This is funny. I remember going to school and asking people if they'd seen it. Like, who's seen Jaws? And this one girl, still remember her name, Michelle Wilde. Shout out to Michelle. (laughs) Wilde with an E. She, She told me, she's like, yeah, I've seen it. So I guess we're five, and I was like, "Tell me about it." My dad won't let me watch it, and she was like, "Well, the shark comes, and then he eats like an ocean liner, and then like, and then like, um, these army people drop it." She just made it up. She had not seen it. And by the way, you should have seen me. I was like, "This film sounds incredible." I, I was almost disappointed when I saw the movie and they didn't drop bombs on the shark, but um. But So I guess that's the first movie like like everyone of that era, I was obsessed with Star Wars, but there was something extra special about Jaws that went beyond Star Wars. As much as I loved Star Wars, there was something more. And I thinking back now, I think it was the first seeds of that love for horror. It was like, you know, Star Wars is great and all, but it's not a horror movie. It's yeah. not scary. like something about Jaws. I could not stop thinking about it. It drove my parents crazy. Every story I had to write for school, every drawing the teacher said, like, okay, everybody do a painting. It was always a shark. <laughs> it was always – I mean, this was like a years-long obsession with, with sharks and jaws. And, and And so, yeah, I guess that's one of the movies I can point to. Sorry, I'm giving you guys really a long no, answer. No, this is good. This is good. <laughs> I
3: love this. Would you ever... Would you, I would love to see what you would do with a Jaws film. Yeah, yeah. It's funny.
4: It's interesting with Jaws, isn't it? Because what other movie do you know where a filmmaker dropped the mic on an entire genre? I mean, for what... Is it 40 years since it came? 75 is when it came out. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. no one's been able to make a truly great shark film at the level of Jaws. There's been fun shark movies. Yeah. Right. But... Like he, he dropped the mic and was like, "Follow that, shitheads!" <laughs> and, and everyone in the world said, "Can't." And, uh, and um, it, it's just it's just interesting that he, you know, with his second feature film, he managed to define an entire little subgenre. Of yeah, aquatic horror. Aquatic horror, yeah. shark movies, and they all follow in the footsteps. By the way, any movie, whether it's Deep Blue Sea or the, always has the. Sort of POV and the legs and they're always, you can't get away from Jaws. Its shadow is so long. But, you know, then along the way there were other seminal movies that, you know, shaped me beyond the usual sort of Raiders of the Lost Ark crowd movies like, um, I mean, the Carpenter movies, man. Just Carpenter's 80s run from 80 to 90 is like unparalleled. Think about it. Just like Big Trouble in Little China. You know the thing; flipping. it's just crazy. Like those were just VHS staples in my house. You know, my brother and I must have watched Big Trouble in Little China four hundred times <laughs> on VHS. You just—they sort of become who you are, don't they? Like yeah, once they really you do. you absorb yeah. them so much that they're like a part of you.
3: Yeah. Well, you got you dropped the mic on you know making Saw and Insidious. <laughs> yeah. You guys did yeah. the same well, thing. Well, yeah. I mean, I
4: don't know. Well, th- I, 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 I definitely think like with Saw especially, I don't know about Insidious, but with Saw, we definitely kickstarted something. Like, we, you could feel that there was, you know, how horror goes through these micro-trends. You know, mm-hmm. there's, like, Scream comes out, and then for a couple of years, these photocopies of Scream, yeah. you know, uh, will come on, you know, Valentine, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban right. Legend. It, it's funny, as someone who's witnessed those micro-trends coming and going over the years, it's a funny thing to have started one. We're not the first people to make a a gory intense horror movie at all but just in the way that kevin williamson wasn't the first person to write a slasher movie involving teenagers it was enough of a hit and it was unique enough that all of a sudden for a couple of years that was the thing in horror you know hostile and and all these these intense gory movies were coming out that's been a funny thing to be like oh wow we had our we we," for a moment there we were the sort of pioneers of the moment in the horror genre,
3: right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, no horror movies really looked this no. looked or sounded the right. same since right. since Saw.
0: And we were we were discussing this last night of how Saw has in cinema history probably one of the greatest twist endings ever. We, we started, were really proud of, you, of that one. It's
4: pretty really funny. <laughs> I know it was it <laughs> <Totally> was <bell. laughs> you know you, with movies it's all gambling. You never know if something's going to work. You can feel confident about something. You can you can like it. You can be like, this is a great um, plot twist. But you really don't know if it's going to land or not. I will say that with the ending of Saw, both James and I were like, "We've got something here." Like we 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 knew the ending was good. We didn't know about the rest of the movie, but we knew the ending would blow people's minds if we could get it right. Because of course, it also depends on how you shoot it. You could shoot that ending in the wrong way and totally kneecap it. And um, James did an amazing job. He basically didn't have any time. And the, and the budgetary constraints forced him to pretty much do it all in one shot, which turned out to be the best way to do that big reveal. But, yeah, definitely proud of that one. You know, I've got a lot of affection um, for that first Saw movie, but that, that ending, I think... Uh yeah, I'm proud of that. <laughs> yeah.
3: And then, I mean, the iconography that goes with the Saw franchise, the right. Billy the Puppet, there's yep. the Pig Head, there's the Reverse Bear Trap. All of those have become literally as much a uh, part of Halloween as pumpkins now. Yeah.
4: I know. that it's, it's, it's great. I mean, whenever someone asks me about Saw in an interview, oftentimes it'll be presented as a negative. Uh, i.e., someone will say, like, so what do you think about... Um, you know, the term torture porn, does that make you angry? And I'll always say no. Like, James and I, all we wanted to do was make movies. That's all we wanted to do. But we were these, you know, naive idiots from Australia. (laughs) And we were thousands of miles away from the place where they really made the types of films we wanted to make. And we just had no plan of how to get there. And we wrote this movie and we thought, you know, if we can just get this movie released on video, this was the era when video stores were still hanging in there. Oh, right. And there was a whole cottage industry of straight to video movies, which you guys would remember. Well, yeah. you know, the the whole, f- the full moon thing yeah, where like, yeah, they're cranking out those. Yeah. All of a sudden, <laughs> like uh, a movie, like, uh, you know, uncle Sam, that Larry Cohen w- film would, would appear in video stores. It wouldn't have a theatrical run. Yeah. Like the, they, puppet the puppet master franchise. The puppet yeah. master franchise. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You have to realize that was our goal for Saw. The Puppet Master franchise is what we were hoping for. We were hoping to make a straight-to-video horror movie that had enough of a cult following that Fangoria would talk about it, and therefore we would get our next film off the ground. And so when people say, oh, are you angry about this term torture porn? I'm like, no. No. Am I angry about the fact that James and I's first movie inadvertently created the millennial Freddy Krueger? Yeah. No. Like, I grew up going to sleepovers where we would watch Nightmare on Elm Street Part Four, and I've now met kids who are like, oh, I grew up watching those movies at sleepovers. And I'm like, oh, wow. So, basically, I James and I gave to the world what was given to us. Exactly. Yeah. Back then. And, you know, so am I... Am I Uh, embarrassed or ashamed or angry. No, I'm like so affectionate towards that. I'll eternally be grateful to the Saw films for giving me my life. You know, the only reason I'm sitting here talking to you now about The Invisible Man is because of those movies and that original movie. So, yeah. What a great cast. I mean, Danny Glover, Monica Potter, you know, it's... It's It's funny because the, the guys who produced that movie... They ran a management company. They managed actors, and so all of those actors were clients of theirs. Oh wow. All of them, they were like Monica Potter Carey, always Danny Glover, you're going to be in this movie that we're producing. And they were all like, "Okay." <laughs> and they and and the shoot was only 18 days long, so it wasn't like, "Hey Danny, you know, you need to give us 2 months and you need to fly to Puerto Rico." Right. It was like, "It's in LA and you only shoot for 2 days." And I'm sure he was like, okay fine and uh and uh i don't know if anyone actually knows that yeah they were all clients of the producers that's oh, wow. why that's the common thread between those actors um except carrie actually genuinely did love the script he was really taken by the whole thing uh even though he was a client of theirs he he felt like the one who wasn't just doing it because he was being told to he was like i really want to be here i read somewhere that you shot an actual short
0: before just to Submit it? I mean, uh...
4: yeah, we did. We, so, here, what happened is we finished film school, we kicked around in odd jobs for a few years. We were getting frustrated, we were making short films, but we wanted to make a feature, you know? And so, finally, right around the time The Blair Witch came out, I think that was 99, yeah. we, we got inspired by it and were like, let's just write our own film and finance it ourselves. Let's, let's write something like The Blair Witch, where the low budget aesthetic is part of the story. And we could probably save up $5,000 or $10,000 and we'll go shoot it on video. So that was the whole plan. And so when we came up with this idea for Saw, I went off and wrote the script and we were going to make it with our own money. And it was actually my agent at the time in Australia who said, no, don't go and shoot this for $5,000 in someone's garage. Give it to me for a year and let me go and find real money for it. And we we'll, because he was, uh, she was really taken by the script. And James and I said, mm, six months, not a year. We gave her six months. And she said, okay, fine. So she went and tried to find the money in Australia to shoot the film. And if she had succeeded, Saw would be an Australian movie. Oh. But she was not successful. And she came to us at the end of the six months and, and we, we were like, time's up. And she said, you know, give me six more months. And we said, nope. We, we, we were so desperate to shoot this movie. We just wanted to make a movie. And she said, okay, just give me two more months. I'm taking it over to LA. And I think I can get it made in Los Angeles because that's where they make these types of movies. I think the reason we couldn't get it done here in Australia is because they don't understand horror. And we said, no. We said, nope. Time's up. We're doing it. We, we can't wait a second longer. We had that impatience of youth. And she... She said, fine, and then she just went and shopped it around anyway. And while we were trying to get it off the ground, she called us and said, "Um, I've got a guy interested in L.A. At the end of the story is she she said, you're going to come over and meet with this guy. I'm going to fly you over. And James and I looked at each other and said, instead of just going over to L.A. with a script, we should take this money we saved up to make the whole movie, (laughs) take this $5,000 and spend it on a... Let's pick the best scene from the script. And that's what we did. We, um, we picked the whole jaw trap sequence, yeah. which we thought was the most visceral, striking scene in the movie. And we shot it. We shot it in the basement of a hospital in Melbourne some big boiler room that looked like it was production designed by David Finch's guy.
3: <laughs>
4: it was probably riddled with asbestos. Like I'm going to die one day because of that basement. <laughs> it comes back at you. And, uh, and I played the, the character that Shawnee Smith played in the movie. I, I woke up with this thing on my face. We had a friend of ours build it and it was the exact, it was the one we used in the movie. I think it was the same. So we built it. We did the scene. We flew over to LA with this, dvd in our hands it was still back in the dvd days and yeah that that's how it all came about was we landed in la and then we started taking meetings and we came across this company who were like let's do it and let's do it now let's not wait six months let's do it like tomorrow which to us was like they didn't want to like go through six months of development and changing the scripts they just wanted to go and uh we couldn't believe it We were thinking, why did it take us so long to come to LA? (laughs) Like, (laughs) what, what is wrong with us? Like, this was like the Emerald City to us, you know, when we first got here because we couldn't believe how many doors opened, how many people were willing to talk. Yeah.
1: I remember during press time for Saw, I was working on a show called Loveline with Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew. Oh, and yeah. And you I, were a guest.
4: It was actually myself and Carrie always yes. giving okay. sex advice.
1: I, yeah. And
4: do you know what's funny? I actually, someone, like last year sometimes someone emailed me a link to that interview and said, um, hey, I was listening to this old Loveline interview and I came across you guys. And I listened to it and I was like, not bad, pretty funny. Like, <laughs> I remember Adam Carolla saying to me like uh, at the end of the whole thing, he was like, "Hey, thanks guys. You guys were actually, uh, you guys were actually uh, engaged. Mostly we get like the basis from Slipknot or something, and he's got, he's got nothing to say." And uh, I don't know how good that Adam <laughs> that was Carolla good. was. No, that was <laughs> awesome. But um, I I remember that being really fun. That was like when Saw came out. So. Yeah. Were you actually in the room when yeah, I was doing yeah, that? Yeah, I was there. Oh wow. This yeah. is like and a I reunion like, of sorrow. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> it really is. It really is. I always just want to get like what the guest perspective was. Because some people are like, wow, that was really weird. And then I'll tell some- you know
4: what I did think at the time. In listening back to it, I was like, um, oh wow, this is really engaging. Like we're talking. But I do remember being in the room, they never looked at us. They would talk to us, but they would never meet, and I was like, Wow, they they would they'd be looking at other things, yeah. <laughs> and and I and I was like, it's disconcerting. It's sure. like I, I I was trying to get in their field of vision, and it, it seemed like they didn't want us there. But um, but then at the end when he said, "Oh, that was great," I was like, "Oh, was it? Like it totally?" No, he, it, they
1: loved you. They just have their own little. Thing yeah they operate on.
3: in their weird bubble i hosted that show once and it was very weird that's in that same way and then yeah. you have callers disembodied callers who you're talking to with these crazy issues and you're trying to
4: you know it's yeah it's weird yeah it was fu- it was it was it was you know they're very funny I, I have to hand it to adam carolla he's a very funny quick man like his off-the-cuff jokes you know why these guys get paid so much is because yeah. they can just riff. It's crazy and he, to me, he, at least when, when we did that show, he was genuinely hilarious. You know, a lot of the times with those radio shows, they need other people to go <laughs> and laugh at the guy's lame right. joke. But Adam Carolla wasn't that. He was genuinely funny.
1: He is. He's, he's got a, a really that.
4: You know what's oh, yeah. funny is I, he sold his house in Los Angeles, right? And it was right when my wife and I were looking for a new house and we went to his place. Oh, no way. And he, this was a few years ago now, but... He had, under his pull a full-on dive bar that he had recreated. Now, what your house is to, like, horror museums, when I say a recreation of a dive bar, don't think like he put, like, a that talking fish up on the wall and a couple of coasters. I'm talking, like, if you asked a production designer on a film to build you a dive bar. Like a set. A set. It was <laughs> that... And, he, and and the back wall of the bar had portholes into the pool. Oh, my so God. So you could, oh. like, like,
3: underneath the water kind yeah, of thing? underneath oh, the water. Wow. So someone, cool. someone swimming could...
4: And there were booths, like, you would have in a real... It, and it was this By the way, this wasn't a smaller... This was the size of what a... Your average... Have you ever been to the drawing room in Los Feliz? Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. It was about that size. Wow! And it, had the, and it had the booths, and it had the tables in the red cracked leather, everything. He had clearly said to somebody with his Loveline money build me one of those bars and i swear to god i almost bought that house just based on that wow i was like i was, was like, awesome. the other the rest of the house i was like it's pretty good but the bar i was like it was crazy, like so. That was that's my other Adam Carolla story. That's insane! <laughs> wow.
3: <laughs> well, let's jump. we we'll jump over to Invisible Man. We've seen it. We all saw it. Leo's yes, seen it twice oh my, already. Already, yeah, already. Yeah, already. already. No, <laughs> I love those repeat viewers. <laughs> yeah. It is. It is. Uh, dude, it's a masterpiece. Yes, it really oh, is a masterpiece. Thank you, thank you. Now, I think perhaps as you were saying, like one of the strongest elements is that very early on in the film, you set the tone to make us afraid of nothing which is a real magic trick because in doing that you then make us afraid of fucking everything <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right exactly right? So, so what was the secret sauce of pulling that off so beautifully
4: you know i don't know that there is a secret sauce. it's all guesswork like you you just do your best and you hope for the best like and there were moments on set where i would think is this going to work like i i doubted it but but the decision to shoot the film like that and the decision to weaponize emptiness came during the writing stage very early on like when i when i took the job someone suggested the title of the invisible man to me it wasn't something that i was pursuing it was some something that someone said to me you know what would what would you do with this And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I ended up taking the job and I was sitting at home with a notepad and I'm thinking, okay, so what's scary about the invisible man? What would I have to do to make this character scary again? And I just hit upon this idea that, you know, don't make him visible. Don't put a hat on him and a trench coat. Utilize the invisibility the way the character would. You know, the character wouldn't want anyone to know he was there. And so basically, I, I started writing in the script these scenes where the camera would just pan away from the actors. Usually, I never put camera directions in a script. I don't want the reader to be taken out of the the reading experience. I write screenplays to be read. Even though it's for a movie, I want it to be almost... I have sort of a flowery, novelistic way of writing. Like, um, it, I, I love scene descriptions and similes. I use a lot of similes in my script, like, you know... He leaves the room like a bullet from a gun. You know, stuff like that. I remember one line in the script when, she, when she's running across the lawn. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. In the script, it said, she flees like a prisoner of war. Like, I, I use these Leica a lot. In my, I'm trying to create. And, and so I never put camera direction, but in this script I did. I would actually write. I would capitalize it, and I would say, like, we pan away from Cecilia to focus on the empty corridor and I did that because, to me, it was such an integral part of the movie. Because anyone who buys a ticket to, the, to a film called The Invisible Man is automatically going to be suspicious right? yes. of any empty space I show them. Like you said, I tried to destab- establish very early on from that first scene, you should be afraid. I was trying to say to the audience, you should be afraid of any empty space in this movie. And, if, and I realized if I could do that, I, I, I wondered if I could make an audience tense for an entire runtime. Like usually the EKG chart of a horror movie is jolt, relax for a while, get scared again, relax, relax. You know, we cut to the sheriff, you know, being like, ah, oh, looks like another double motor chief. And you, you sort of go, oh, I can relax, you know. I just saw the film Misery again recently. I screened it at the um, Egyptian theater. And um, every time we go to the sheriff and his wife, it's this little moment where you can breathe and they have this little comic banter between the sheriff and his wife. I wanted to make a movie that didn't do that. I wanted the EKG chart of this film to just be one straight line ramping up. Not sure I achieved it, but that's what I was trying to do. So that's why the you just start toying I with definitely achieved it.
0: <laughs> it's not only the camera pans, but you know what else? It's, it's, it's the lack of sound also. Right. It's like, you know, the camera's holding on empty space and there's no sound. And you're like, yeah, well, that seems familiar because, you know, you could be in your your own house. You look at a dark corner and you're in your own place with no sound. So it's a very familiar
4: playing with your mind. Do I hear something? Do I see something? Yeah. I mean, I just think. Too many horror films, not everyone, obviously, but I think too many people that make horror films use the music to tell the audience when to be scared. I'll have a shot of an empty corridor and then the music will be like, and it's like, be scared now. And it's like, yeah, we know dude. Like you, I think to me, music is a good punctuation mark on something that's scary. Like it's icing on a cake. It's not the cake. And, and, and so in those scenes, I try to strip out all the sound and then let the audience do all the guesswork. And hopefully it makes them tense.
1: You dealt with a reflection on toxic masculinity and the female experience in a very artful and delicate way, which made it even that much more effective. Can you talk about achieving that balance?
4: Yeah, I mean, it felt organic to the script. I certainly wasn't trying to shoehorn an issue or a topic of the day in. Like, obviously, toxic relationships and domestic abuse... And the whole Me Too movement, it's something that's very public right now. It's a conversation that's happening. But I feel that I'm I'm exactly the wrong person to be talking about that issue. People like me have had the microphone for a long time. And I think now is the time to listen. But when I was writing this movie, as soon as I decided the lead character would be a woman who was escaping from this relationship, I then did some research, as I always do on any screenplay, if I'm writing a film about a... You know, a homicide detective. I'm going to go and interview a homicide detective, and I, I i don't want I don't want to take my knowledge of homicide detectives from movies I've seen. I want to actually go and interview a real one and get the real story because that's what research does. Like, um, I feel like it it makes your film unique. Like, like for instance, take a film like Heat. Right, hmm. Heat is the oldest story ever told: cops and robbers. But when you watch it, you feel like you've never seen that movie before. And the reason is because Michael Mann did so much research into real-life characters, not only with interviewing detectives, but going to prisons and interviewing crew. He did so much research into that topic that it became specific. And when something's specific, it's unique. When you're in danger is when you have the Cops and Robbers movie that just takes its cues from other movies. You know, and the guy walks in and he's like, you know... Looks like a double tap entry wound, Chief. <laughs> and then, you know, there's a guy with a cigarette hanging. who's like, it's time to take out the garbage. And not to say those movies aren't fun. So research is key is what I'm saying. And so, okay, now it's a, it's a bad relationship. I need to research this. And I went and interviewed some counselors with a domestic violence shelter in LA. And they start talking about this psychological manipulation. And it just, to me, it just started wrapping really organically around the idea of an invisible man. Like, what better metaphor for somebody being gaslit and manipulated than in than invisibility? And the person trying to prove... Because oftentimes what happens in those situations is the person thinks they're crazy. Somebody is manipulating them to, to the point where they question their own reality. And so I felt like the Invisible Man would really fit well with that. So, yeah, I just um, I just kind of went with it, you know. I didn't consider myself the authority on the subject, but I just kind of went with Whole topic. Watching Cecilia on the screen, I actually know a couple female
0: friends who have gone through that same specific trauma that she goes through in the movie. I don't want to give it away or anything, mm. but it, it shocked me because I mean, it was almost like verbatim, word for word. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, it was just it's scary. I'm thinking. Man, I, I kind of want them to watch this
4: movie, but then I kind of don't at the same time, you know, because it's like Could something be really triggering for yeah, them. exactly. I mean, it's, you know, it's but... um, it's 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 gratifying to hear you say that, but I and I think it comes from research. I mean, for any aspiring screenwriters listening, whether it's in the horror genre or any genre, r- research and talking to people will always make your screenplay better, because you know when you say to me like, oh man, it, it seemed like it was verbatim yeah. taken from their life. Well, that's because. I spoke to some people in those situations and oftentimes they're very similar. They're always, you know, these people that do this, the, uh, um, narcissistic kind of abusers and manipulators, they have the same MO. Right. They, if you look it up, you can actually look up the seven traits of a narcissist or the seven traits of a sociopath. It's a personality type. So they don't actually deviate from the roadmap very much. You see this, you hear the same stories coming up again and again. If people have a, a narcissist in their lives or a sociopath who's really manipulative they always can trade stories with other people that match up and so that's probably why my research led you to say wow this really matches up with my friend's stories yeah exactly you know every story is the same story when it comes to dealing with these types of people
0: were you ever uh, tempted when when coming up with the storyline of the, the wells novel you know making it a modern day interpretation, making it yours.
4: Were you ever tempted to go the paranormal route and give them a different origin than what we see? No, you know, from the very beginning, from that first meeting where this character was suggested to me, I, I, what I could see was like the gone girl version of it. Okay. And and when I say the gone girl version, I mean that very stark clinical, modern, very, very modern. Like if I, if I had to choose a movie that I could see in my head, it, it would be Gone Girl. That that sort of very clinical Fincher style. Not to say that I saw the movie being similar to that film plot-wise, but stylistically. And just how, how that film had a lot to say about modern relationships. You know, it's a thriller, but it's really about a marriage. And so I, I could see, so, and at no point did I think, man, I should set this film in the 1800s. or I, I think I would rather watch that movie than direct it. Like, I, I actually love gothic horror. I mean, your house is, I, I'm going to talk to you after this podcast about moving in. But but, um, but I, I love that sort of production design. You know, I, I wrote a film, which you guys have paid tribute to in this house, Dead Silence. James and I really wanted to pay tribute to those, like, Hammer horror films and Mario Barber films and, like, the Roger Corman version yeah. of the House of Usher. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the fog and the, they're beautiful. You know, uh, Sleepy Hollow. There's a real beauty to that, and and that movie was us trying to pay tribute to that, although I think it's a longer story for another podcast, but it, <laughs> our our original vision and draft, it got diluted way down from where it was because the studio was saying, no, we need to modernize it. I, I think J-Horror was big at the time. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. And so the they kept saying, grudge. it needs to be more like The Ring in The Grudge. <clears throat> yeah. They, the original version had a lot more flashbacks and it was set in the past and it had this very... And they weren't... They were like, oh, this isn't going to fly with today's teenagers. It was more like Mary Shaw. Right, or, exactly. Yeah. So I do love those movies, but I think with this particular movie, I wouldn't have known how to do it if, if the film had been set in the 1800s. I wouldn't have known how to make that scary, but I can make it scary if it's set now. You know, that was the basic approach.
3: Also telling it from... Again, from the victim's perspective, makes yeah. the mon it
4: empowers the monster yeah. right? exactly. I mean, is- to me, to me, it's kind of obvious. Like, would you, would you make a version of Jaws from the shark's perspective? <laughs> can you imagine yeah. it? They did yeah. come out with a video game. Remember that yeah. the Jaws Unleashed? Yeah. It's yeah. like yeah. you are the shark. You know? <laughs> after after you've eaten you're like fifth person, you're like, is this it? <laughs> but um, can you imagine, imagine, imagine that movie told from the point of view of the shark? It would be you. The reason we feel fear in that movie is because we are this hapless we are in the shoes of this hapless individual with the odds stacked against him who who doesn't know how to deal with this unseen threat just a shot of water in that movie is enough to instill fear and that is a model i mean going back to your first question to this day jaws still reverberates from that initial viewing it's, it's The ripple effect on my life has been so huge that I will write a movie um, based around the tenets and structure of that movie. And um, what he did in that film is he built, he built the movie so that all he had to do was cut to the water and you were suspicious. You're like, what's under there? I can't yeah. see it. And with The Invisible Man, I can do that with Oxygen. Yeah, it's really it's it, that's what it's all about, you know. It's just um, trying to um, you're trying to scare people on a deeper level than just um, giving them the jump jolt, you know. A good jump scare is I'm, I've done a few in my time. I'm not against them, but I think you got to do them right, and you've and you've got to. They just have to be the cherries on the Sunday, like you. And they need to sit. On a bed of real fear and suspicion. I feel that's when they're at the most effective is when the audience is already frayed and gripping their seat. And then you hit them in the face with a big jolt and it rips their head off. If all you have is the jolt, then... You don't have much.
3: Well, Lee, thank you so much for being here and spending time with us. I know you got a million things going on, and the Invisible Man—not anymore. Suspicious. I just canceled Tagged them all, so that's can right. Spend the <laughs> yes. Here we go. Yes. A <laughs> week, Lee. Whatever. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, everybody, you got to see the Invisible Man. Yes. It is unbelievable. It's epic. Yeah. It's in theaters now. <laughs> That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 111.
0: Special thanks to our guest, Lee L Follow him on Twitter at L1L And see The Invisible Man in theaters everywhere now.
1: Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams.
2: Thanks for listening to another episode of The Boo Crew Podcast Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo The Boo Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand The Boo Crew is a TSP creation part of the bloody disgusting podcast network.
0: Bye.